Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Stairway to Danger by John Blaine. Volume 6, Chapter 12 Lefty the Ganif. Rick sat in a comfortable armchair in Captain Douglas's quarters at the state police barracks. His leg was stretched out on another chair while the doctor, brought to the barracks by a patrol car, repaired the damage. The doctor muttered while he worked. Of course you can keep this from healing very simply, Rick. It isn't necessary to crawl over rocks. Just kick it against a door every now and then. That'll work just fine. Rick smothered a grin. The doctor was definitely irritated. The state troopers had fetched the man from a movie, the first one he had been able to attend in weeks, he said. When the doctor was finished, the leg was throbbing like a sore tooth. There you are, the doctor said. He added tartly. If you expect to crawl over any more rocks before that heals, stop by my house first. My son has a pair of catcher's leg guards. I'm sure he'll be glad to lend one to you. He turned to Captain Douglas. If you'll have me return to the theater, Ed, I may be able to get back to my seat in time to see the villain caught. As he departed in company with a trooper, Captain Douglas grinned at Rick. You're very popular with the doctor. Not so sure you're popular with me, though. You got blood all over my chair seat. He went to the bureau and opened a drawer, rummaged around, and found a pair of socks. Here, put these on. Rick's sock was saturated because his leg had bled so freely. His shoe was wet, too, but there was nothing he could do about it. As he changed, Scotty described what had happened. Mike Curtis paced the floor, adding explanations from his point of view. When the recital ended, Captain Douglas looked from one to the other. I think the big question is why you were attacked. Obviously, these men didn't know Rick and Scotty were there. So the attack must have been just on you, Mike. And I'd say they were interested only in shooting at you, not trying to kidnap you. Mike was big and dark and dressed in slacks and a sport coat. The jacket was made to conceal the fact that he carried a thirty-eight in a shoulder holster. Rick knew he seldom carried a gun, but tonight Mike had acted on a hunch. I didn't know anything about the hit and run of the amusement park, Mike said, until Rick and Scotty gave me the details on the way here. I came down because they asked me to find out about the present ownership of the place, and I found what seemed to me to be an interesting tie-in. What was it? Captain Douglas asked. The amusement park is owned by Soapy Stray's brother-in-law. The boys gasped. Soapy Stray was the gang chief who had escaped from prison the night they arrived from Hong Kong, the one for whom the roadblocks had been set up. Scotty whistled. Don't tell me we've been tangling with his mob. We'll soon find out, 
Douglas stated. He pushed a buzzer and a trooper came in. Get me a picture of Soapy Strayed, Joe. The trooper was back in a few seconds. He handed the picture to Captain Douglas, who wordlessly passed it on to the boys. Rick gulped. Talk about playing with dynamite. Soapy Strayed was the red-headed man with the big jaw who had been in the funhouse last night. You can add a mark on his left cheek, Scotty said shakily. I smacked him solidly with a rock. Mike Curtis shook his head. For years, really tough guys try to nail Soapy with rods, knives, submachine guns. Then he runs into the Spindrift gang and gets beamed with rocks. If I'd known it was Straten Company shooting at me from behind the trees, I'd have been a much more careful citizen. You can believe that. Maybe they'll catch him at the roadblocks, Rick said hopefully. I'm afraid not, Captain Douglas replied. He's too smart to get caught like that. But I better warn the civil defense people and my own that he's in the area. He buzzed again and gave instructions to the trooper, then beckoned to the boys. We have a rogues gallery. Ain't very big, but it has the best known mugs from the area. Scotty spoke up. There's a big question in my mind, Mike. How do they know you were coming to Whiteside? And how do they know where and when to lay for you? And most of all, why do they want to get you? I think I have the answers, Mike told them. First of all, I found the dope about the amusement park in a real estate office where that kind of property is handled. The girl in the office gave me the information, and as soon as I saw the owner's name, I got the connection. I muttered something about Soapy Strain, and she must have heard me. I didn't know what you two were up to, but I got worried when I thought you were bucking strayed. So I called Spindrift then and there and left a message. She must have heard that. She was the only one who could have tipped off Strain and Company. That doesn't tell us why they tried to get you, though, Rick objected. I think it's pretty obvious. He waved his hand at Rick and Scotty. He tried to get you, didn't he? For the same reason. He didn't want his presence in this part of New Jersey known. Search for him has been mostly in New York. Isn't that right, Captain? If he hadn't plowed into Jerry and Rick's sister, he probably could have hidden out indefinitely in the amusement park. But he knew that the hideout was no longer safe as soon as we started prowling around, Rick pointed out. He had nothing to gain by wrecking the cub and trying to kill us. Captain Douglas smiled grimly. He had no way of knowing whether or not you recognized him, but he probably felt it was better not to take a chance. There's an old saying, the dead men don't talk. I still say there wasn't reason enough to try to kill us, Scotty stated. Soapy Stray doesn't need a reason, Mike Curtis said. He's apt to pull a gun on a man because he doesn't like the color of his eyes, the color of his skin, or whatever reason. You gave him just enough cause by making a little trouble for him. All right, Rick agreed. But that doesn't account for his ambushing you. By the time you found out his connection with the amusement park, he had already tried for us, and the amusement park was out, at least for a regular hideout. There's something in what you say, Captain Douglas said. I think we have only a part of the answer, though. Mike Curtis patted Rick on the shoulder. Remember I told you once I'd give you a job any time you wanted one? That still goes. I have to agree that we don't have all the answers. But, 
Captain Douglas said decisively. We have enough for some action. Let's get you started on the rogues gallery, and I'll do something about spreading the alarm the strays in the area. The rogues gallery was on a series of circular files. Each file had a number of leaves which contained overlapping clear plastic folders. Each folder contained a photo and a description. Are we supposed to go through all of these? Scotty demanded. Good night. There must be thousands. We're going to be here for a month. Not as hard as you think, Captain Douglas said. Most of the photos won't look anything like the men you want. You can raffle through them pretty fast. Just start at the bottom and run your hand up. You can see the photos as they fall back and into place. If anybody looks promising, you can take a closer look. Get started while I put a message on the teletype and hand some dope to the radio dispatcher. We'll have half the police in New Jersey in this area by the morning. Rick stared at the files. I didn't think there were this many criminals in the whole world. Mike Curtis grinned. Don't think for me there are. That's what keeps me in business. Listen, guys, I can't be of any help here. I didn't get a good look at any of those men. You going back to New York? Scotty asked. No, I'm going into business right here. Didn't you know there's a fat reward for Soapy Strayed? If I can catch up with him, it's money in the bank for Michael Curtis Investigations. But you haven't even got a lead, Rick objected. Sure I have. Listen, Soapy Strayed and his pal vanished from the amusement park. Somewhere they picked up another car and a third man, right? Now, I can't believe they left the area after getting out of the amusement park, because that means going by the roadblocks twice, once on the way out of the area and once on the way back in. Those civil defense auxiliary cops are thorough, believe me. I know. They stopped me on the way down and gave me a good long look before they passed me. They have all the pictures and descriptions of Soapy. He couldn't have got by them. So you think he's still around? Scotty asked. Yeah, I think he's holed up somewhere, maybe in one of the summer communities. There are plenty of them inside the roadblocks. So I'll just float around, ask a few questions, keep my eyes open. You never know what's going to turn up. Good luck, Rick said. Thanks, Mike said, smiling. Shouldn't hold out on you. I have another angle, too. Soapy is tipped off by the girl in the real estate office. It was probably by phone. In fact, I don't see how it could have been anything else. So wherever he is, Soapy has a phone nearby, and there has to be a record of that call somewhere. It had to be a long-distance call from New York, remember? Mike had certainly figured out the angles. Rick grinned his admiration. I have an idea where you should start. The private detective held up his hand. Wait a minute. He took a notebook and pencil from his pocket and wrote rapidly, and then he tore the sheet out and slid the paper face down across the cabinet on which Rick had been leaning. Tell me. Then take a look at the paper. Let's see if we think alike. Rick eyed the paper dubiously. Well, I'd start with the local phone company. There are no dial phones in this area, so operators handle all the calls. I'd find the operators who were on duty this afternoon and talk to them. Mike laughed. Take a look. Rick turned the paper over and read, Find phone ops on local board between noon and 8 p.m. today. On the nose, he said. Maybe I'll take that job, Mike. Mike Curtis winked at him and hurried out the door. 
There goes a sharp operator, Scotty remarked. I'd hate to have him on my trail. Same here. Come on, let's go through these photos. Following Captain Douglas's advice, the work went rapidly. Rick would put his hand under the bottom most of the photos, which were hinged at the top, and then move his hand up slowly, letting the cards fall back into place. Now and then he saw a face that fit the general description of one of the two men who had been with Strayed and stopped for a closer look. It was interesting. He began to realize there was no such thing as a criminal type of face. Every man in the file had a police record of some kind. Some had served prison terms, others had gotten off, others were listed as wanted. There were faces that could have belonged to every known profession. Some were gentle, some were tough, most were just people. Captain Douglas came over and asked, Any luck? Not so far, Rick replied, and Scotty confirmed it. They resumed the tedious work, stopping fifteen minutes later for a cup of coffee with the captain. Then they went at it again. Just as Rick had decided his leg wouldn't take much more of this, Scotty let out a yell. I got one! Captain Douglas, Rick, and two troopers came running over. Scotty pointed to a picture of the caretaker. He didn't need a shave, and his hair was shorter, but there was no mistaking the man. Scotty read the description aloud. George Blomer, alias Lefty the Godf. He read off a physical summary hurriedly and then continued. Served ten years manslaughter. 1931, freed on a technicality. 1932, indicted for knife murder of James Strepp, believed implicated in the mass murder of the East River Gang, connected to the Soapy Strayed Gang. Lefty the Godif, Captain Douglas said. A caretaker, no less. Well, he's taking care of more than a few in his day, even if we can't prove it. That was a funny nickname. Rick asked its meaning. It's Thieves Argot, the state officer explained. It's derived from Yiddish for thief. Rick shuddered. And we walked right up to him, claiming to be a couple of innocent neighbors looking over the amusement park. I'm glad I didn't know anything about him then. My knees would have knocked together so hard, he'd have thought I was playing castanets with my toes. Chapter 13 The Tractor Soar Through the cities and the countryside of eastern New Jersey, the hunt for Soapy Strayed and Lefty the Gonif was in full cry. Cars passing southward were stopped once, twice, even three times as they reached roadblocks manned by civil defense or regular police. In the area around Whiteside, state troopers patrolled the roads, eyes open for any suspicious event, no matter how insignificant. Mike Curtis talked with the officers who had chased the ambush car the night before, and with a phone operator. Then he drew a circle on a map of the area, procured a sample brush kit, and became a salesman, knocking on every door. Jerry Webster and Duke Barrows, editor of the Morning Record, spent so much time answering queries from out-of-town papers that they had no time to cover their usual beats. The Spindrift scientists were interested, of course, but only casually. They had two projects underway, and at least one, the building of the Thinking Bulldozer, was urgent. 
That project was so near to completion that Hartson Brandt and Hobart Zircon dropped what they were doing in order to help Winston and Weiss make the final assembly. Rick and Scotty slept late. The crash had taken a toll on both of them, and they needed extra sleep to regain their usual stamina. By the time they came downstairs for late breakfast, even Barbie had been up for some time. She was no longer limping, and only a discoloration where her leg had been badly bruised remained of the close call. When the boys told her the identity of the man responsible, her eyes opened wide. Barbie listened to the radio much more than they did, and she could repeat tales of Soapy Strayed that they hadn't known. We've made Barbie's day for her, Rick said as his sister ran for the library. She'll be at the telephone from now on, telling all her friends about it. I better call Dad before she starts, otherwise I'll never get on the phone. The scientist was at the project. In a few moments, Rick had him on the phone. This is Rick, Dad. How do you feel? Good. Is something up? Hartson Brandt chuckled. I'll say so. The highway is crawling with police. A cruiser goes past on average once every ten minutes. You certainly stirred up a hornet's nest, Rick. However, that wasn't why I asked your mother to have you call. We had a phone call this morning from uh, our, our sponsors. You understand? Rick did. That meant the Defense Department or maybe the Atomic Energy Commission. I know what you mean, Dad. Fine. Well, they will have observers here to see a test run tomorrow afternoon. They're in rather a hurry to get the first model. That means work for all hands. And I want to know if you and Scotty can finish the other control units. If we have a full test, it will take all the units. They'll want to try transferring control from one point to another. We can do that, Dad. We have the stuff and the silk screen for the circuit and Scotty's templates. Everything is ready to go. Good. Then come to work and be ready to stay late. Rick considered. Getting a ride to the project was uncertain. We'll come by boat, Dad, and we'll be ready to stay over if we have to. There's a lot of work on those little things, and we're getting a late start. Sure you feel up to it? How's the leg? It still hurts, Rick admitted, but if I sit down, it doesn't bother me too much. It's only when I stand on it too long. All right, son. We'll look for you later. Rick hung up and went to the kitchen. Mrs. Brandt had eggs and ham almost cooked. Coffee was percolating, and there was toast browning in the automatic toaster. In a short time, the hearty breakfast had been consumed. The boys had collected toothbrushes and a change of clothing, and were on their way to the project by boat. Again, Scotty was the pilot. The trip by boat would be only a little longer than by car. Also, it gave them a chance to get their thoughts straightened out. We've got two unanswered questions, Rick said. He had to raise his voice to be heard above the roar of the engine. First, what was the meaning of the light on top of the roller coaster? I'm not satisfied with that signaling theory. Captain Douglas pointed out that a signal has to be to someone, and we have no evidence Strayed needed to signal anybody. The second question is, why did Soapy Strayed ambush Mike Curtis? So far as I can see, he didn't have a thing to gain by it. 
Unless he was anxious to have his connection with the amusement park kept secret a little longer, Scotty suggested. Well, that raises a whole new set of questions. Why? There's a whole lot about this business we still don't know. Anyway, Scotty answered, we know more about Soapy Strayed. I got up before you did this morning and listened to the morning newscast. The story is out that he's in the area, and the announcer gave a lot of dope on him. He's a wealthy man, I guess. At least he's credited with some real big robberies, including a payroll stick-up that netted him close to a million. Of course, little of it can be proved. He was in jail on a charge of income tax evasion, well, as well as kidnapping. They passed a summer colony, and Rick wondered how Mike Curtis was doing. He hoped his friend would win the reward, if anybody did. A short distance below Seaford, they saw the roller coaster. It was the most prominent landmark in that part of the coastal area. They tied up to the pier in front of the project building. The pier had been built originally to take much bigger boats when the building was in use as an oceanographic station. Rick had to climb to get to the top of the pier, and his leg began to ache again. Inside the building, all hands were working on the tractor itself. A workman was welding curved steel plates, which had been ordered and pre-shaped for the purpose. They would form the armored shell for the machine. Another workman was rigging a chain fall, which would be used to lower the shell when the scientists were ready for it. Hartson Brandt, Hobart Zircon, and Julius Weiss were studying an oscilloscope, a device which showed the electrical pattern of sound on a circular screen, much like that of a television receiver. The principle was the same. Both the television and the scope used cathode tubes to project a picture. Rick was familiar with the device. One similar had been used in the submarine that the scientists had constructed for underwater use. What's up? Rick asked. Zircon turned. We're trying to establish word patterns to which the machine will respond. So far, we have several. We need as many more, though. What's the scope for? Scotty inquired. We don't want words with two similar patterns. It would confuse the machine. If you think in terms of teaching just enough English to someone who doesn't speak English for simple directions, then you have the idea. Scotty laughed. We not only build it, we teach it to understand English. Why not just use Morse code or something? Julius Weiss answered that one. This will have military use, as you know. Suppose a control unit fell into enemy hands and required only a few simple code impulses. Knowing the military desire for simplification, the code would probably be printed on the outside of the unit. The enemy could use our own machines against us, or at least confuse them. But if we make the command simple English, it will become more difficult. We would set the circuits so they will respond only to proper, uninflected pronunciation. Then, even if an enemy speaks English, it won't help. He must speak English without the slightest accent in order to have the machines obey. We're choosing words that are generally pronounced the same way in all regions of the United States. Parnell Winston had been working on the tractor. Hartson, he called. I'm set for the starting command. Want to try it? 
The scientists picked at the control Rick and Scotty had built. All right, Parnell, say when. Any time, Winston called. Rick's father flicked the toggle switch on the unit and spoke one word. Switch. Across the room, relays clicked. A solenoid switch rammed home, and the tractor engine coughed into life, raced for a moment, and then idled. Rick and Scotty looked at each other in amazement. To know how the machine was expected to work was one thing. To actually see a voice started running with one word was something else. I am snowed, Rick exclaimed. He noticed that a tiny directional antenna, no larger than a donut, had swung as his father spoke, and standing on a direct line with the scientist, he pointed to it. Dad, what's that antenna for? Directional control. When we give directions, it will be in terms of the position of the control unit. In other words, the word to will mean come to me. Right will mean to swing 90 degrees to my right. The scientist stopped as yells rose from across the room and the engine raced. Rick looked up as the tractor started spinning on its caterpillar treads. Parnell Winston jumped on the thing and did something, and the engine cut out. Be careful, he yelled. Turn off the control unit before you talk. The machine was working all right. Hartson Brandt had forgotten to throw his switch to the off position, and the tractor had tried to obey two commands at once. Rick and Scotty walked over to the machine. Parnell Winston greeted them with a pleased grin. She's something, isn't she? She certainly is, Rick agreed. But I see one change we have to make in the control unit. We can't have things happening like what just happened. Suppose I put a spring button in instead of the switch. Then the controller can't forget to shut it off. Great idea, Winston said. Go ahead. I'm sure you'll find spring buttons of some kind around here. It's too late to change the original unit. Scotty pointed out. The switch terminals are set in solid plastic, but we can put a spring unit in the rest. The boys retired to their bench and started work. Rick cleaned the silk screen with solvent, leaving it ready for use. Scotty cut plastic sheets of the right size for the circuits and then started cutting pieces for the cases. It was fast work because he used the first sheets of plastic he had shaped as patterns to make the original box. There was a piece of plastic for each piece of the case, and Scotty needed only to place his models on sheets of stock and trace and then cut. Rick used the silk screen to print four more circuits and then left them to dry and wandered over to where the scientists were at work. Harson Brandt was compiling a vocabulary for the machine. Checked off as suitable were the words switch, off, to, Go, stop, right, left, get, round, jump, slow, and kill. Rick saw the meaning of most of the words at once, but a few puzzled him. He asked Zircon about it. Get means to lower the bulldozer blade and start pushing dirt, Zircon explained. Round means to go around something. If the machine strikes an obstacle and gets the command around, 
It will not try to push the obstacle aside. It will go around it. Jump means full power. Slow means just that. Kill means to keep working on the object until no obstacle remains in the way. Our toughest job, the big scientist added, is finding words that have a uniform pronunciation and still come close to the right meaning. They must be close so the controller can remember them easily. It doesn't matter to the machine. We can use any combination of sounds. Rick went back to work, gluing the parts in place on all four sheets, and then starting the precise, tiring work of connecting them into the circuit. Scotty was making good progress in shaping the case parts. By lunchtime, the workman, who was welding pieces of the outer plate, had finished. Sandwiches in hand, Rick and Scotty surveyed the finished product. It looked for all the world like a giant turtle shell. There was a hole in the top with patent fasteners around the edge. There was an access port through which work could be done when the plating was in place. There were other smaller holes through which the machine could be filled with gas, oil, water, the battery filled or checked, and adjustments made in the bulldozer blade. The blade would not be put on until the plating was in place. On the front of the domed plating were two projections that would take lights like auto headlamps. They gave the thing an odd appearance. This thing is going to look like a nightmare when you're finished with it, Scotty said. Sort of a cross between a tractor and a dinosaur. A tractor saw, Rick agreed. A new variety of beast. Parnell Winston had come up behind them in time to hear their comments. Wonderful, you've named it he said. Listen, everybody, Rick and Scotty have come up with a name. It's the Tractosaur. There was a chorus of delighted comment. The boys hadn't known it, but the scientists had been searching for a descriptive name since the start of the project. That calls for another sandwich, Sir Clint boomed. Come on, Rick, Scotty, I'm the cook. Name your sandwich. I'll make it. I'll have a hot dog. Scotty said. Sorry, no hot dogs. How about a corned beef sandwich? I just had one. I'll have a roast beef on rye. Sorry, no roast beef. How about corned beef? Rick grinned. In other words, Scotty, you can have any kind of sandwich you want, as long as it's corned beef on whole wheat. Not quite, Sircon corrected. He could also have a cold bean sandwich. How about it, Scotty? I'll stick to corned beef, thanks, Scotty said resignedly. Zircon sawed a chunk of corned beef that would have strangled an alligator. He stuck it between two slices of bread and handed it to Scotty with a flourish. We ate better than this on the trail in China, Scotty grumbled. You had a better cook, Zircon reminded them. Come on, Scotty, relax and enjoy the benefits of civilization. You're still a little wild from being in the high hills for so long. Don't you know corned beef is the ultimate product of modern industry? This fine American product is... Scotty interrupted. He'd been reading the label on the corned beef tin. This stuff is from Chile. The other scientists laughed. Zircon groaned. 
I try to make a fine patriotic speech, and what happens? I'm betrayed by an imported product. All right, Scotty, I'll admit corned beef is not the only palatable sandwich ever invented. But you have to admit that these sandwiches are much better than no sandwiches at all. There was something fishy going on here, Rick thought. Corned beef was only one of several canned varieties in the small food store. Why didn't you open something else up, Professor? he asked. We could have at least had soup. Zircon looked embarrassed. Say, that's right, Winston said. I just ate what was handed to me without thinking about it. Why didn't you fix something else, Hobart? Zircon waved his huge arms. Why? I'll tell you why. I was defeated by a fiendish product of this mechanized civilization. I was frustrated by an invention of a warped mind. Suddenly, Rick got it. He exploded into laughter while the others looked at him with wonderment. Don't you get it? He means he couldn't figure out how to use the can opener. Confounded device, Zircon muttered. The corned beef can opened with a key which came attached to it. The others required a can opener, and the only available one was a new type that completely baffled the new scientist. The lunch period broke up on a note of merriment. Zircon went back to work shaking his head, and the boys returned to their bench. Every time something like this happens, I marvel, Scotty said. Look at him. He uses complicated equipment I can't even begin to understand. He can wrap out equations on processes so hard only a handful of men in the entire country can read them. And he bogs out completely with a can opener? Rick had often wondered about peculiar blind spots of that sort. He had them himself. He could figure out very complex electronic circuits, yet he found himself stumped on a really simple puzzle that Barbie had solved easily. I guess we're all meant to fall short of perfection in our thought processes, he said. Even men like Zircon. Come on, Scotty, let's roll. we got a bunch to do. It was sundown before the next break came. Then the work on the control units was interrupted by the placing of armor plating on the tractor. The boys hurried to help lower the dome into place. All hands but one held it while the workmen pushed bolts in through a number of holes and then tightened them. The tractor sore looked more like a dinosaur-aged turtle than ever. With the aid of the chainfall, the big bulldozer blade was attached to its movable arms. The tractor sore was complete, except for closing the top. The lights were in place, and they worked. The antenna thrust up like an oddly shaped ruff on an animal. Put the top plate on, Rick begged. I want to see what it looks like when it's finished. At a nod from Winston, two workmen slid the plate into place. A few twists of their screwdrivers locked the patent fastenings. The tractor store was finished, except for testing. Going to try it? Scotty asked. Hartson Brandt shook his head. No point in taking it outside tonight. It will be dark before we get started. But I do think an inside test would set our minds to ease. I'm sure it'll work exactly as planned, but let's try a few commands. Parnell Winston took the control unit and switched it on. Switch, he said. There were a few clickings and the engine roared to life. Go, 
The tractor saw his antenna, which had pointed at the scientist on the first command, swiveled briefly. The tractor spun until it was stern on to the scientist and then started ahead. Stop, he said quickly. The door was only a few feet away. Unless stopped, the tractor would have gone right through it. Two, Winston commanded. The machine spun until it faced him and then started ahead. Rick watched, interested. The caterpillar treads enabled the machine to spin in its own length. On the command two, the left tread had reversed, while the right one went forward, spinning the tractor around. That's enough, Winston said. He shut the control unit off. We can put it through its paces tomorrow morning. Off, the scientist added, and the engine stopped. Don't you have to throw a switch, Rick asked, to shut the receiver off, I mean? Not on this one, Harson Brandt explained. With transistors, the power drain is so low that it's not really of consequence. We didn't bother with a circuit switch. To shut off the electronics portion for repairs or replacement, we remove one battery cable. Rick, how close to done are you? Another two hours' work, more or less. We better stay tonight, Dad. We'll have the units done in time to get a good night's sleep. Hearts and Brad hesitated for a moment. It's all right, I guess. The highway has more police cars than I've ever seen on it. Just please, don't start hunting Soapy straight again. After the scientists and the technicians had gone, the boys prepared supper using a can opener that had baffled Zircon. Then they resumed work, completing the assembly of the four control units. The workbench was cluttered with parts. Rick absently put the original unit in his hip pocket to make room on the bench, and then cleared space for the rest of the work. He had intended putting all the control units in a single place, but by the time they had finished, he had completely forgotten about it.